friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't suspect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes, and yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my genuine hope, with our weekly almanac, to feed to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick and concise installments, perfect for a nice sit in your favorite chair, a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little parcel with a lesson you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, personalities, and ideas covered in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together, let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My friends, where is the time gone? Can you believe we only have four more episodes until our season finale, and it feels like we're only getting started? We here at Let's Be Frank are busy scheming and plotting for what the future holds, so, my friends, keep a weathered eye out for announcements we'll be making in the coming weeks regarding Season 3, what diversions you can expect during our brief hiatus between the two, and, as always, the fun, enlightening, and slightly absurd content from your favorite founding father across the various social media platforms we find ourselves slowly ingratiating ourselves into. If you've not yet, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok at Be Franklin Live, and like us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank. And if you find you can't get enough of all the whimsy and intellect here at Let's Be Frank and wish to take a more active role in supporting the history we make every day, consider joining our Patreon, where you can unlock a bevy of perks and content made specifically for the beloved supporters without whom we could not make this little almanac happen. Now then, with all of that out of the way, we haven't a moment to waste. Let's get to today's installment. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is part three of this season's central story, Spilling Tea. Things are getting messy in the American colonies, and today we're going to brew up an entirely new pot of trouble. So sit back, grab a cup, and let's get ready to spill. In Spilling Tea Part 1, we covered the Stamp Act with three primary sources, a letter from John Dickinson, a statement from Richard Bland, and a testimony from yours truly, talking about how the Stamp Act set the precedent that laws could be made directly influencing the American colonies. Spilling Tea Part 2 Uh, spoke of Boston's response to the Stamp Act, the terrible riots of 17 and 65, and then leapt forward to March of 17 and 70, where we discussed the Boston Massacre. Part 3 is going to give us 
three primary sources that involve three famous individuals of the American Revolution. And so let's turn the clock back slightly from where we left off March of 1770. Let's circle back to my testimony given to Parliament in 1766. Now, if you recall, the Parliament of Great Britain and myself discussed the constitutionality of the Stamp Act, whether Parliament had the authority to directly tax the colonies. One of the sentiments I uttered was that if soldiers were sent to America, they would find no rebellion, but they may indeed make one. Now, in addition to that prophetic sentiment, one of the things that I uttered upon being asked was that Parliament may have the authority to lay duties on the American colonies rather than taxes. Unfortunately, that sentiment would be used as justification for some of the policies that followed after the Stamp Act. Following the repeal of the Stamp Act came the Townsend Revenue Duties, not taxes per se, but still things that economically influenced the colonies with products such as lead, paint, glass, and tea. This is important, dear listener, because it will lead eventually to our fateful evening in 1773. These duties would apply to goods being imported to the American colonies. And so, they affected shipping greatly, particularly those who derived an income from shipping, and encouraged a new practice that almost immediately led to rising tensions between Great Britain and her colonies, that of smuggling. Because of this, Parliament sought more mercenary applications to ensure the obedience of the American colonies. They sent soldiers to begin enforcing the laws and put forward a legal measure which further distanced the American colonies from their English liberties. These soldiers and officers were bestowed with something called a writ of assistance, which essentially gave them the authority, without any probable cause, to be able to search ships, homes, and other public places for any goods not openly declared. This unwarranted search and seizure only incited greater frustrations amidst the people of America, but most particularly the people of Massachusetts. Boston being a major port for shipping, they felt these various coercive measures much more firmly than other places within the colonies. Which leads us to our first primary source, from a name that I think you'll recognize, a figurehead of American shipping and, yes, American smuggling, Mr. John Hancock. By 1768, tensions continued to rise, and customs officials, recognizing the frequency with which American merchants had turned to smuggling, began to not only use these writs of assistance to enforce the law, but also enrich themselves, searching sloops for undeclared goods, and then, upon seizing those goods, using them for their own profits. This frustrated the colonists greatly, but... Most significantly, those various merchants whose livelihoods was most affected. And so in June of 1768, John Hancock put pen to paper and put forward the following. You are already too well acquainted with the melancholy and very alarming circumstances to which this province, as well as America in general, is now reduced. 
taxes equally detrimental to the commercial interests of the parent country and the colonies are imposed upon the people without their consent. Taxes designed for the support of the civil government and the colonies in a manner clearly unconstitutional and contrary to that in which till of late government has been supported by the free gift of the people in the American assemblies or parliaments, as also for the maintenance of a large standing army, not for the defense of the newly acquired territories before the old colonies and in time of peace, the decent humble and truly loyal applications and petitions from the representatives of this province for the redress of these heavy and very threatening grievances have hitherto been ineffectual, being assured from authentic intelligence that they have not yet reached the royal ear. The only effect of transmitting these applications has been a mandate from one of His Majesty's Secretaries of State to the Governor of this province to dissolve the General Assembly merely because the late House of Representatives refused to rescind a resolution of a former House, which implied nothing more than a right in the American subjects to unite in humble and dutiful petitions to their gracious Sovereign, when they found themselves aggrieved. This is a right naturally inherent in every man and expressly recognized by the glorious revolution as the birthright of an Englishman. The concern and perplexity in which these things have thrown the people have been greatly aggravated by a late declaration of His Excellency Governor Francis Bernard that one or more regiments may soon be expected in this province, the design of these troops is in every one's apprehension, nothing short of enforcing by military power the execution of acts of parliament in the forming of which the colonies have not and cannot have any constitutional influence. This is one of the greatest distresses to which a free people can be reduced. Now we know where that road led, dear listener, do we not? It led to March of 1770, the Boston Massacre, the occupation of a city, and the gradual attempted subjugation of a continent. Now, if that brings us up to speed, let's move the dial forward. Let's talk about the aftermath of the Boston Massacre. Now, those soldiers involved in the murder of those American colonists would eventually stand trial. That trial would take place in December of 1770, where a particular lawyer with a particular destiny would be consigned to their defense, none other than Mr. John Adams. Now, despite my frustrations with Mr. Adams, the following account will give not only great summary of that massacre, but also a unique perspective of the time. For you see, my dear friends, even by 1770, the topic upon America's lips was not yet independency, but rather restoration of the liberties and ties of consanguinity that we so desperately craved. Mr. Adams was not yet the firebrand advocating for America's independency, but rather a champion of English law and English justice. Now we see in the following account the adherence to those various principles and ideologies that would, in six short years, turn instead to devotion and principles that would become synonymous with American aspiration. Now, I have, my dear Junto, abridged Mr. Adams' defense. It's excessively long, but I assure you, 
I've kept the best parts for you to share today. Now here is the defense of those soldiers involved in the Boston Massacre. May it please your honors, and you gentlemen of the jury, I am for the prisoners at the bar, and shall apologize for it only in the words of the Marquis Beccaria, if I can but be the instrument of preserving one life, his blessing in tears of transport shall be a sufficient consolation to me for the contempt of all mankind. As the prisoners stand before you for their lives, it may be proper to recollect with what temper the law requires we should proceed to this trial. The form of proceeding, at their arrangement, has discovered that the spirit of the law upon such occasions is conformable to humanity, to common sense and feeling, that it is all benignity and candor. And the trial commences with the prayer of the court, expressed by the clerk, to the supreme judge of judges, empires, and worlds. God send you a good deliverance. We find in the rules laid down by the greatest English judges, who have been the brightest of mankind, we are to look upon it as more beneficial, that many guilty persons should escape unpunished, than one innocent person should suffer. The reason is because it's of more importance to community that innocence should be protected than it is that guilt should be punished. For guilt and crimes are so frequent in the world that all of them cannot be punished, and many times they happen in such a manner that it is not of much consequence to the public whether they are punished or not. But when innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned, especially to die, the subject will exclaim, It is immaterial to me whether I behave well or ill, for virtue itself is no security. If such a sentiment as this should take place in the mind of the subject, there would be an end to all security whatsoever. I will read the words of the law itself. The rules I shall produce to you from the Lord Chief Justice Hale, whose character as a lawyer, a man of learning and philosophy, and as a Christian, will be disputed by nobody living. One of the greatest and best characters the English nation ever produced. His words are these. It is always safer to err in acquitting than punishing, on the part of mercy than the part of justice. The next is from the same authority. It is always safer to err on the milder side, the side of mercy, than the best rule in doubtful cases is rather to incline to acquittal than conviction. And in page where you are doubtful, never act, that is, if you doubt of the prisoner's guilt, never declare him guilty. This is always the rule, especially in cases of life. Another rule from the same author, where he says, In some cases, presumptive evidence go far to prove a person guilty, though there is no express proof of the fact to be committed by him, then it must be very warily pressed, for it is better five guilty persons should escape unpunished than one innocent person should die. In the continual vicissitudes of human things, Amidst the shocks of fortune and the whirls of passion that take place at certain critical seasons, even in the mildest governments, the people are liable to run into riots and tumults. There are churchquakes and statequakes in the moral and political world, as well as earthquakes, storms, and tempests in the physical. Thus, much however must be said in favor of the people and of human nature, that it is a general, if not universal, truth that the aptitude of the people to mutinies, seditions, tumults, and insurrections is in direct proportion to the despotism of the government. 
in governments completely despotic, i.e., where the will of one man is the only law, this disposition is most prevalent. In aristocracies next, in mixed monarchies less than either of the former, in complete republics the least of all. And under the same form of government, as in a limited monarchy, for example, the virtue and wisdom of the administration may generally be measured by the peace and order that are seen among the people. However this may be, such is the imperfection of all things in this world, that no form of government, and perhaps no wisdom of virtue in the administration, can at all times avoid riots and disorders among the people. Were there not more than three persons in Dock Square? Did they not agree to go to King Street and attack the main guard? Where, then, is the reason for hesitation at calling it a riot? If we cannot speak the law as it is, where is our liberty? And this is law, that wherever more than three persons are gathered together to accomplish anything with force, it is a riot. I do not mean to apply the word rebel on this occasion. I have no reason to suppose that ever there was one in Boston, at least among the natives of this country. But rioters are in the same situation, as far as my argument is concerned, and proper officers may suppress rioters, and so may even private persons. If we strip ourselves free from all military laws, mutiny acts, articles of war, and soldiers' oaths, and consider these prisoners as neighbors, if any of their neighbors were attacked in King Street, they had a right to collect together to suppress this riot and combination— I must enlarge no more on the evidence, but submit it to you. Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence, nor is the law less stable than the fact. If an assault was made to endanger their lives, the law is clear. They had a right to kill in their own defense. If it was not so severe as to endanger their lives, yet if they were assaulted at all, struck and abused by blows of any sort, by snowballs, oyster shells, cinders, clubs, or sticks of any kind, this was a provocation, for which the law reduces the offense of killing down to manslaughter. In consideration of those passions in our nature which cannot be eradicated, to your candor and justice I submit the prisoners and their cause." The law, in all vicissitudes of government, fluctuations of the passions, or flights of enthusiasm, will preserve a steady, undeviating course. It will not bend to the uncertain wishes, imaginations, and wanton tempers of men. Three hours after Mr. Adams gave this defense, the jury reached a verdict. No malice was found. All eight men were found not guilty of murder. Two a Hugh Montgomery and Matthew Kilroy were found guilty of manslaughter. A defense lawyer, to the very last, Mr. Adams negotiated the sentences of Montgomery and Kilroy using an ancient precedent of English law, the benefit of clergy, meant that instead of death, the two men would be branded on the thumbs as first offenders, never to be permitted to violate the law again. John Adams would later describe his role as the greatest service I ever rendered my country. The reason? In a town where British soldiers were hated, there had been a fair trial by jury. In a land where mobs could sway events, the world saw that justice and liberty were valued in the American colonies above all else. 
The soldiers may have been pardoned by the law, but the people of Boston would not forget the massacre. A great many supporters of the cause of America would not let them. On the anniversary, a man well known for his aptitude in writing and passions for liberty would put on a display to remind the people of Boston what they had endured over the past year. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than Paul Revere himself. A silversmith by trade, Mr. Revere would put forward etchings recreating that Boston massacre to ensure that the people of America were acquainted with the terrible act. For the one-year anniversary of the event, he decided to hold some pageantry of his own, which would eventually make its way all the way to a newspaper in Virginia. Now, this comes from the Virginia Gazette, April 4th, 1771. Tuesday last, being the anniversary of the melancholy 5th of March, 1770, where Messrs. Gray, Maverick, Caldwell, Carr, and Attucks were killed by a party of soldiers in King Street, the bells of several congregational meeting houses were tolled from twelve o'clock at noon till one. In the evening, there was a very striking exhibition at the house of Mr. Paul Revere, fronting the old North Square, so-called. At one of the chamber windows was the appearance of the ghost of Christopher Snyder, with one of his fingers in the wound, endeavoring to stop the blood issuing therefrom. Near him, his friends weeping. At a final distance, a monumental pyramid with his name on the top and the names of those killed on the 5th of March round the base, underneath the following lines. Snyder's pale ghost, fresh bleeding stands, and vengeance for his death demands. In the next window was represented the soldiers drawn up, firing on the people assembled before them the dead on the ground and wounded falling with the blood running in streams from their wounds, over which was written foul play. In the third window was the figure of a woman representing America, sitting on the stump of a tree, with a staff in her hand and the cap of liberty on the top thereof, one foot on the head of a grenadier lying prostrate, her fingers pointing to the tragedy. The whole was so well executed that the spectators, which amounted to some thousands, were struck with solemn silence, and their countenance covered with a melancholy gloom. At nine o'clock the bells tolled, and a doleful peal until ten, when the exhibition was withdrawn, and the people all retired to their respective habitations. Tensions would continue to climb for the next three years. Which brings us to where we sit this present November of 2023. Now with Spilling Tea Part 4, we're going to conclude our business by discussing the months leading up to the Boston Tea Party, following it as best as we are able in real time. Now around this time, dear listener, 300 years ago, the tea that would eventually find itself in Boston Harbor is solemnly sitting in port. The angry people of Boston gathering amidst governors' mansions and customs houses, sitting in outrage by the tea which defiantly stands as a symbol to British tyranny. It's not in the harbor yet, but revolution is brewing, my friends. Now what lesson can we derive from today's installment. With the holidays upon us, I think today we should have a very different message. 
Now, it's my understanding that Americans in 2023 have a particular holiday that they're observing this week. A day of giving thanks, where family gathers round the dinner table, endeavors to set aside their differences, and come together to focus upon the things they feel grateful for. I think I should find today's lessons in the sentiments of Justice Hale, mentioned by John Adams in his defense. It is always safer to err in acquitting than punishing on the part of mercy than the part of justice. Now, I have no doubt, if your relations, my beloved Junto, are anything like mine, that there are some political and social differences within your family structure. Now, I, in the course of my life, did not always handle those differences with the greatest grace, virtue, and mercy. And so, the lesson for today's installment and for this Thanksgiving season is to err in acquitting rather than punishing, to pursue mercy rather than justice. The lesson for today, my beloved Junto, is to err on the milder side of things. For myself, on this first Thanksgiving season of mine, I should express my undying gratitude for you, my beloved Junto. Thank you for bringing history to life with me. Your presence in my life is indeed a mercy. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank and Instagram at Be Franklin Live. And finally, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well, and always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.